This evening, I'd like to offer a long-range view of our practice and kind of a comprehensive look at what we're doing here together and throughout our lives as Dhamma practitioners. I do this so we can see what the important foundational practices are that we often forget about because we're doing this uh, meditation part. But there are other parts of our practice that are also very important parts of our practice that we practice in the world. It gives us a confidence in the faith that we need to have when we do these practices in a comprehensive and understand the importance of each one of them. Gives us that faith and confidence that we can complete the journey. And we know what the complete journey is also. So as we practice, we begin to understand more and more profoundly the true nature of this body, mind, and process with a lot more uh, compassion, a lot more wisdom. We learn how to bring a more balanced awareness to our experience. And we learn that by going through all the ups and downs of our practice, where we feel that we're out of balance and we come back to the middle path. We're either maybe too restless or too sleepy in that range, and we find out how to bring ourselves into a kind of energy range that's relaxed yet alert, just as an example. We see that the mind and heart can unfold where it has been folded in upon itself, Uh, places where each of you in your own way have experienced um, times when you just feel really tight around something and then something starts to loosen up and unfold and something comes out of that loosening where we feel more vulnerable and more able to face our vulnerabilities that are so painful to face. So in that, we understand how to be more courageously clear and bring a sobering honesty to what's unfolding instead of the fearfulness of pushing away and not wanting or not able to face it because we haven't practiced that very much. So even when it's hard to bear, we're able to still do our practice. So we begin to see experientially for ourselves um, how the practice brings forth wisdom. And we begin to use that wisdom, what leads to happiness, and to go forth into that, uh, onto that path, what leads to suffering, and kind of relinquish the ways that bring us onto that path because we become more aware of what helps and what hurts us. So with a continuity of practice moment to moment, day by day, and year by year, the heart and mind begins to see things as they really are. We become more in alignment with the truth of reality, and we are able to face that truth unflinchingly and courageously and with a lot of vulnerability, but it's okay to face that vulnerability. So we begin to be more in harmony with how things are. And of course, this happens gradually. It's a gradual awakening. It doesn't happen overnight. It, it, it takes, for most of us, it takes time 
You know, there's very few in this world where it happens uh, just all of a sudden, and it's very deep and very wide. So we bring forth through this gradual awakening, actually a lot of compassion develops for ourselves, for the world, a lot of patience, a lot of faith in ourselves, a lot of faith in others who are not kind of uh, behaving in a way that um, is loving. They might be behaving in a way that's harmful, but we can still keep our hearts open to them. So we, we, we can rely on these new inner attitudes that we're developing through our own experience. We know that through clarity, more clarity, more courage, more compassion, uh, we can go forth. We, we make the steps. We take the steps. When ripples of the pond occur because our life kind of throws in rocks in maybe what was a still forest pool, but, you know, then life happens and ripples come, currents come. We have the patience and we have the wisdom to know it can return to stillness. It can return to clarity. We will be able to see more clearly in time and know how to proceed. So we see that time and time again, and we can rely on that. We know ourselves, we know our strengths, we know our weaknesses, and that's what the practice helps us to learn. So we see that wisdom and time produces refinements of this happiness and this peace that are not about acquiring or gaining anything, not even gaining Dharma knowledge. It's by our experience through the ups and downs of our practice on the cushion and at home. It's not by acquiring meditative states of bliss or high levels of concentration uh, or even the spiritual goodies that come along with our practice. You know, we know they come to an end. We don't hang on. And we know maybe something better is to come because it always does. More wisdom, more compassion. So this purification takes place. Um, The tenacious holding on begins to loosen its grip. And the habit patterns of greed, hatred, and delusion begin to weaken. And in time, get uprooted. So through the continuity of awareness, um, selfish, harmful tendencies weaken and they dissolve. And they are no longer as present. And in time, they become fully purified in the mind and the heart. This is the truth of how it is, of what the Buddha promised for all of us. When I first started practicing, like all of you, I was really searching for some peace in my life, some kind of calm. I was um, the single parent of three young children, under all under the age of six. And it was really a hell realm, <laughs> to tell you the truth. So I burned a lot of karma then, like they say. I was only in my mid-twenties, and I had three children already like that. So um, 
when Manindra asked me, what brought you to the Dharma? And I said, suffering, you know. And I wanted to find the end of suffering or some relief from it, at least. And so I met him, and it was um, not long after I met him. Actually, I met him during his first time to come to America, and it was my first long retreat. I had only done weekend retreats up to that time, but I heard of this wonderful teacher coming from India and Burma, and I decided to kind of take a big jump, and I went from a weekend retreat to a month-long retreat. So in that time, there were, you know, I had a family that would help me take care of uh, the three children I had. I'm, I'm from a, an Asian family that um, we take care of each other. So that happened. And so it was safe for me to stay away for that long. And I went home from time to time to check on them. That's how I, I made it through that time. So I asked uh, Manindra what, what was going to become of me in, in this practice. I had really, I, I think I was just born with a lot of faith in the Dhamma. So I went into the practice with a lot of inner faith. And I asked him, what was my ultimate aim? What was this practice going to lead me to? I really wanted to understand what I was getting into. And he told me at that time that, um, after I said to him, you know, I came just to be a better human being and to be a better mother um, in my life. And so he said, you could have much, much more than that. So he, he started to explain to me how there could be this unshakable deliverance of the heart and the mind, where all the places where I experienced suffering could be totally uprooted. And being in my mid-20s and really wanting that for myself, you know, and for others, I just was totally gullible, I guess, and I just totally took it all in and said, okay, I I believe it, you know. I didn't, from the very beginning, maybe it was like a little bit of um, naivete, but I, I totally believed what he was saying. And he said that I could experience what is called the sure heart's release, where there could be a total release of all greed, hatred, and delusion. And so he brought forth to me this passage from the teachings of the Buddha, from the Buddha himself. And this is where long ago I learned this passage from. He said, the Buddha's teachings are really a lot more far-reaching than you are trying to reach for. But you need to know what the far-reaching goal or aspiration of the Buddha is because then you wouldn't be really living out the Buddha's teaching um, in reality. You would be, you, your, your aspiration is kind of low. Uh, he told me that in a nice way. <laughs> and so this was what I... I um, was told by him in his own words, and then uh, came across this reading. He said, this is from the Buddha's words, The purpose of my teaching of the holy life of the Dhamma is not for gaining merit, nor for good deeds, nor for rapture, nor for concentration, but for the sure heart's release, 
This and this alone is the reason for the teachings of the Buddha. And this is the sure heart's release. So this is the complete relinquishing, the complete purification of greed, hatred, and delusion from the mind stream, from the heart mind stream. And this is what the Buddha experienced as a human being, not as some god, not as some heavenly realm being, uh, not as some kind of superhuman being, uh, but probably, yeah, he was some kind of superhuman being even at that time because he had perfected all of the beautiful qualities that a human being could have um, and more. And so uh, this is to understand what the comprehensive view of these teachings are all about and not to um, fall short of them or not to not to think, you know, they're only to this level or that level. They're far beyond sometimes we could even imagine. So the Buddha made clear that cultivating generosity, virtuous conduct, concentration, these are all necessary for this sure heart's release. But it's much more than not that. It's, it's really a place where we can experience that deep peace and happiness that's beyond all of the conditions of this world. So I asked Manindraji, is someone like me really able to do that? I'm, I'm merely, uh, you know, a mother. I mean, not merely. Uh, I'm a mother, right? Like, okay. And, uh, you know, a human being, and I'm not, I'm not from heaven realm or... I'm not a goddess or anything like that. And um, he said, of course you can. You know, just kind of flat out like that. And he told me about Deepama. Deepama is the woman that uh, one of our colleagues, Amita Schmidt, wrote about, um, who was a relative of Manindraji, a housewife, a mother. And... uh, she really went beyond Manindraji in her accomplishments in the purification of her mind by Manindraji's, his own, um, he, he says so himself. So he said, anyone can. In fact, he told me stories of people in India, his neighbors and relatives who he had taught, and even they, uh, some of them had begun to go beyond, begun to take the steps to release greed, hatred, and delusion to certain levels of what we call purification or awakening. So in those days, um, I didn't, I don't remember hearing him using the word enlightenment or this person was enlightened or that person enlightened, but he talked about purification a lot. And also, he talked about the three major areas that cause confusion and um, delusion in our lives, and this is greed, hatred, and ignorance. And that uh, those areas are what we can start to purify, not just through meditation, but through other areas of our life. And he used to say that if we paid careful attention to what he called the three pillars of the Dharma, we could really have a comprehensive understanding of what we needed to do at home and on the sitting cushion so that we could begin to purify this greed, hatred, and delusion 
or ignorance in within ourselves. So these are the three pillars of the Dharma that I would like to speak with you about this evening, and I'll say a little bit more about some of it tomorrow. The first part, the first pillar, is the pillar of what we call dana. Dana means giving. It's not only having the thought of giving, but actually acting it out, actually doing the fullness of the karmic act and receiving the karmic benefit of that by actually uh, completing what we have in our minds and completing the action. So dana is generosity. It's the mindful practice of the action of giving with the inner attitude of generosity. It's not merely feeling generous, but it's completing that generosity. And the second pillar is in Pali called sila. Sila is translated as morality, but we can know it as living in harmony, living in harmony with others and actually living in harmony with our own highest values in life, our own highest wholesome values in life. So that's the second pillar. And the third pillar is bhavana. Bhavana is that Pali word that means bringing forth wisdom, bringing forth, cultivating uh, concentration as in in one category. Uh, Bhavana comes in two categories, Uh, uh, cultivating concentration, and the other is cultivating wisdom, which is what we're doing in our practice here some of concentration and a lot of wisdom. So all of these three are mindfulness practices. Uh, mindful, being mindful of cultivating generosity in the giving, being mindful of cultivating living in harmony, being mindful of uh, developing and bringing forth wisdom uh, through bhavana. So the simplicity of giving careful attention to these three pillars of life, if we really know them and bring them home in our practice, are a reliable foundation for our refuge, if we really pay attention there. So it's important to understand how these trainings can develop open-hearted, harmonious connections with others in our lives. So we have a sense of harmony in ourselves which actually help us on the sitting cushion so that that inner sense of harmony, relaxation within ourselves can easily open up. So how can they be wholesome, positive forces guarding our lives? So it's important to bring forth that deep sense of well-being that comes from generosity, which I'll talk about next, and also comes from harmonious living. Because we know uh, for ourselves when the mind is plagued by regret or even remorse, which is actually, you know, a wholesome thing, remorse when we contemplate on what we've done that isn't um, so nice, that is harmful to ourselves or others, and we kind of think it over and see what, how we can become better in that area. But even that brings a kind of Um, place of the opposite of relaxation in ourselves and we we feel unworthy we we have self-blame so we our practice becomes very bumpy 
it's really important to practice uh, living in harmony with ourselves, being um, generous so that we can let go of some of these places that we're clinging to. I know for myself that when I come to a practice and I have disharmony in my life, when I come to sit and it's not very harmonious in my life because um, of my own heart not being at ease, it's real. that practice, that time of practice is really, really difficult for me because a lot of that time I'm, I'm going over what happened in my life. So I want to start <clears throat> with generosity about contributing to other people's happiness and coming to understand how that contributes to our own happiness, to our own well-being, to our own spiritual welfare. And it opens the path for us. So this is the first pillar. Menindra used to say, you really have to have all pillars kind of be in balance because you can imagine when all three are there, there is a balance and a good foundation. But when one of them is weak, not a very good foundation. So just to see where you need to put more energy in your life uh, is really a good thing to do. The Buddha said that there are two kinds of rare and precious beings in this world, those who are grateful and those who are generous. And he really wanted to acknowledge that. You know, a lot of you have been expressing um, gratitude today. And this is a good sign in your practice. And also um, generosity in terms of letting go. You know, we, we get generous with ourselves because we can, we can let go of things that are causing us inner harm. We become generous with others because maybe when we see the faults or the limitations of others, our fellow yogis, it doesn't bother us as much. That's how I see generosity in those terms. You know, we, and that's what happens. You know, things around us don't bother us as much when we're in practice and we become more grateful when we're here in retreat. So one thing leads to another. So when we read the suttas, we see that when the Buddha would offer the Dhamma in a gradual way, which it's, they would say he would always offer in a gradual way when he was invited to give the Dhamma to a group. He would often begin with the teaching of generosity, the teaching of dana. And it said that uh, it is the beginning, the Buddha said, it is the beginning practice for those who wish to diminish the forces of suffering. It is the beginning practice. So it's not meditation. You know, when the when the Dhamma came to the West, we were so interested in calming the mind, in meditation. Um, and because we're a society of intelligence, of psychological, scientific, and all kinds of intelligence, we became interested in that. But really, the place to start is generosity, harmonious living. And that's where the Buddha started. So we're coming back to the real teachings of the Buddha now and really beginning to understand them. So even when people were advanced in their practice in, in the audience, the Buddha still started with the practice of generosity. It isn't the generosity of 
giving whatever material resource you have, not just that. It's a generosity that can let go of harmful states of mind so that we can live in harmony with ourselves and others. So the practice of generosity gives us a tremendous sense of outer and inner stability. So we can see that when we're generous, like generally in our lives, when we can lend a a helpful hand, when we can be there and just bear witness to a person's suffering or to a person's joy, we connect with that person. It forms a sense of family, and we really uh, feel safe in that kind of web of, of safety. I, I ponder on so many times in one way or another that my existence really depends on the generosity of others, on the goodness of others, and the other way around, too, that their life uh, depends on my sense of giving and my sense of being helpful to, to them. And so there's this kind of interconnectedness where our kindness is really something that connects us with one another. And when we feel that, and when we're living that, and we're not living in kind of blame and criticism and, you know, uh, us versus them, etc., we feel this sense of, we need to feel that sense of kindness. And we need to feel that safety so that we can continue on our path. Otherwise, it's really, really hard. So this is a kind of wisdom that we have, that we need kindness. We need this sense of interconnectedness that really helps us to live our lives in a way that we can go through the hard bits and not get overwhelmed by them in a way that we give up or that we push against what we don't like. So it engenders a stability that we all need, this kind of non-separateness in this floating world, a feeling that we're all in this huge safety net net together. So I've lived the past 40 years, much of my life in Hawaii, and uh, it's a place of a lot of tradition and a lot of respect for for elders and, and Um, people who understand that kind of deep medicine of the heart and the mind. And so there's a lot of emphasis on the breath there in in a different way than we have here in practice. The word aloha, I just want to talk about that word a little bit. It means more than a hello or goodbye or love. Uh, The last part of that word, ha, means breath. And in in ancient times and even today, some of our elders and uh, our kapuna, our elders and our kahuna, the uh, the medicine people of the heart and the mind and bodies, uh, they greet each other by having a kind of, a, you know, an embrace. And then on one side, they will say, ha, you know, and kind of breathing in the breath of life to a person on one side and then to the other side. And so it's a way of saying, I share my life with you. 
I share this breath of life, which uh, we all have with one another. And so it's a really wonderful sharing. It's not done that often anymore. But uh, a friend of mine came to me and said she wanted to share with me what came actually in the general provisions of the state of Hawaii. And it, it's kind of a law <laughs> about aloha. So I just wanted, it's quite long, but I'm only going to read to you a section of it. And this is section 5-7.5 on page 30 of the general provisions of the state of Hawaii. And says, aloha is more than a word of greeting or for or farewell, or a salutation. Aloha means mutual regard and affection and extends warmth in caring with no obligation in return. So that means no attachment to result. You just give your love. Aloha is the essence of relationships in which each person is important to every other person for collective existence. Aloha means to hear what is not said, to see what cannot be seen, and to know the unknowable. You know, that's pretty high bar <laughs> for a st- state legal system, too. Yeah. <laughs> well, I-, I wish it were truly that way, but politics sometimes takes over, you know. And so, but there is a lot of it that way there. So it's amazing to realize that uh, when we're there and and walking in in, um, nature there, and all of you realize this too, I hope, that just being among the trees here and in nature, you know, we're breathing out what the trees are taking in and they're breathing something, oxygen out to us and taking in what we're breathing out, the carbon dioxide. And so there is this flow from this breath that we live in, that's always happening. So we're living in this atmosphere of generosity, in incredible generosity that we're living in. So it's good to understand that in that sense. So this is a sharing of one's life, and um, it's Donna is one of the qualities, the four qualities of a beautiful human being in the Dhamma. Uh, One of the qualities is faith. Another is virtue, which I'll talk about. And another is wisdom, which I'll also talk about. And talked about faith a little bit a while ago. So it's also the first of the paramis, the qualities that carry us across the river of confused existence and into um, the other shore of of wisdom, of liberating wisdom. So it's a very important quality to understand in this whole uh, comprehensive realm of the Dhamma. The Buddha said, If beings knew as I know the results of sharing gifts, they would not enjoy their use without sharing them with others, nor would the taint of stinginess obsess their heart. And even if it were their, their last and final bit of food, they would not enjoy its use without sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. So a little story to tell. Um, Stories make you more attentive, so we try to put them in 
here and there. So living with Manindraji once in a while when he would come to stay in our family, when he would come to America, um, I used to, you know, have to leave him at home and go to work and maybe leave some food there for him to eat after having breakfast and then come back for dinner. And um, so sometimes I, I would come home and this is about, you know, sharing it if there were anyone to receive it. So I'd come home and during the time we was staying there, I would see lots of like a lot of insects, you know, crawling around. And I'd look more closely and there would be bits of rice in the corner here and in a tiny little dish, some some food over there and cockroaches crawling on it. And <laughs> I see what Manindraji, what, what are you doing? <laughs> you know? And he'd say, I don't have anybody to share it with because you're not here. So I'm sharing with the insects. And he would also share with the dog and the cat, you know. So he really took the Buddhist teachings to heart. He really, really did. And even even then, you know, when we'd sit around the table and eat something, everything that we had would be offered to him. And so he, he would accept it because it was offered. But then, you know, it was his now, right? So now it was his. So he'd have a banana and he'd unpeel the banana and I'd usually sit next to him. And then he would take a piece of the banana and he would say, open your mouth. And then he would just <laughs> shove this piece of banana in my mouth, you know? And he would really, at first I would say, what is he doing, you know? <laughs> then I would realize he's sharing it with others, you know? It's his and he can share it with me. He's being generous with what he has. So really taking it to, to heart that way. So during a time that I was helping him, he asked me if I really understood the value of generosity. And, um, you know, because I was helping him. And I said, I just feel like it's an honor to help you. So I'm doing it because I love you and I, I want to help you. And he said, well, um, it's a real priceless gift that you can, you're giving this generosity. And he said that you can practice generosity in two ways. You can either do it with a full understanding or a partial understanding. You can do it with wisdom or without wisdom. So well, what's your choice? And I said, well, I'm not, you know, I'm, I'm, I have a little bit of wisdom. <laughs> so I choose to have more wisdom. So tell me, tell me what it is both ways. So he said, um, in the first way that you practice without full understanding, you'll still reap positive karmic event, uh, benefits by giving. The wholesome action of giving produces wholesome results for the giver. You know, when, when one gives, one gives life, one gives energy, um, and because that person has a, a better balance within oneself, develops a clearer mind, a more healthy complexion, and all of that happens for the giver as well. So whatever you're giving to the other person, when say when you're giving food, you're giving that to yourself as well. So you receive the karmic benefits of what you're also giving, like um, in, and more even. So when you get more out of it, you're practicing with full understanding, with wisdom. 
because you're still reaping the positive karmic benefits in the cause-effect relationship, but you're also knowing the deep and far-reaching implications of generosity because it weakens the tendencies of greed, hatred, and delusion. Every moment that you're giving is a moment that's weakening that tendency of holding on. Whatever you're giving, you know, you're helping others, giving of your energy, of your material resources, you're just being there with a person. That's giving. And so you're reaping far more than, you know, the karmic benefits. You're reaping a lot of wisdom from that. You're, you are allowing your path to full liberation to open up wide. And um, I love the way my, my, one of my aunts says it, my Auntie Esther. She says, you just cast your bread upon the waters, you know, you give, and you'll really get back a casserole. It, you get a lot more back than what you ever give. So this is what happens when we give, and it's um, we're we're really giving up a lot of the uh, torments, the three root torments of the mind: desire, ill will, and delusion. We're we're letting go of them. So one of our teachers, Utejaniya, says you're really letting go of greed, holding on, and that's a big deal to let go of. And so generosity is so important as the first pillar of the Dharma. And the second one is morality, living in harmony by the careful attention to our speech and behavior. And when we take the precepts all the time, every morning, we're constantly reminding ourselves of this. May my speech and behavior lead to the highest goal, to complete liberation. So refraining from killing, from harming others, from stealing, from uh, the unbeneficial use of our sexual energy, from lying, refraining from all of that, from uh, taking drugs and intoxicants that will make the mind unclear and then do all the other things without uh, full knowledge or knowing or clarity. So in this um, refining our morality, we're constantly refining our respect to not hurt or harm others or ourselves. We, we understand that more and more. I'd like to talk to you about, let you know about the two guardians of the world. When I read about this um, a long time ago, it was su- such a beautiful topic to start to read about. And um, I learned that these are known as in Pali, Hiri, H-I-R-I, and Otapa. So just to mention that, you don't have to um, understand, no Pali. Uh, just know that these are the two guardians of the world. And I'd like to um, fill those out a little more. How are they the guardians? Because Hiri, the first part, is known as, um, translated as moral shame, not Now, I'm going to retranslate that and fill that out because that isn't very inspiring, you know, moral shame. Otapa is known as moral fear. So how does that that relate to us really in the Dhamma? Hiri is a wholesome shame or a wholesome shrinking away 
from doing something or saying something that will cause hurt or harm to another. It's not a shame associated with self-aversion or that toxic shame that is like, I'm a bad person. I'm thoroughly a bad person. It's not that kind of psychological shame. It's this innate wisdom that certain behavior or actions don't feel right because we have a sense of conscience around that. So it's an intuitive sense that this, what I'm saying or doing or even thinking uh, in this relative realm of existence where there is this sense of self, there is I, me, mine, and you other, you know, relative sense of existence, um, that we understand that we, this is not good to do, to hurt or harm another being. So this is rooted in self-respect. This has an internal reference. It's we shrink away from wrongdoing. We're careful not to plant harmful seeds of, of ill will or ignorance or uh, holding on in our own karmic mind stream either because we don't want to harm our, ourselves, our karmic mind stream. So um, this is really important in, in our practice. And when I see this happen in my own practice or get caught in it, it makes the intention stronger to not do that anymore. When I, you know, because I'm not, my path isn't finished, so I I feel these things. I do. Harmful speech and behavior happens and comes out by the momentum of habit patterns. And so they're a lot less now than before, but I'm not willing to keep feeling that agitation that I feel when it comes about. It's just, I just see that this is not good. And that is wisdom when we see that this is not good. Otapa is that moral fear or dread that has an external orientation. It's a healthy form of fear because we fear the consequences of our actions uh, from the words and the and uh, actions that spring from harmful greed, hatred, and delusion. For example, if we break the harmony of what our communal standards are, Otapa is dreading the difficulties that come from that. And what are the difficulties that I see for myself, and it's written about that I fear losing the trust of others. I fear losing the, the trust and the confidence that you know, my, my colleagues and um, my compadres and comadres think of me. You know, I, that isn't, um, I fear of losing their respect for me, basically. And so I don't want that. You know, I, I want those who I love and those who I trust to also trust me. So that's the fear that we have. That's the dread that we have in this part of living in harmony, sila. So I remember um, my eldest grandchild, she, she had this otapa. She was doing something that was really naughty. I'm not going to say what it is, but it was really not good. And so um, the thing that got her was when her mother, my daughter, said to her, I'm going to let Nana know. And, <laughs> and then she just completely stopped. 
And um, because, and then she really came to me and she said, Nana, I'm sorry. I'm, I'm sorry if you lost your confidence in me and I promise I won't do that again. And do you still love me? And I, I, said, I said, of course I do. But I didn't like it when you were doing that, you know. But I still loved you, still love you now. So that was her fear, her dread of losing my respect. So Hiriotapa is so, so important. And um, in the, the Sudhimaga, this beautiful book, Path of Purification, written by Buddha Gosha, he illustrates the difference between the two. He says that there's a simile of an iron rod that's smeared with excrement on one end, and on the other end, it's heated to a glow uh, of you know that's really, really hot. And he said, Hiri is like one's disgust at the um, immorality compared to integrity. And so because of the disgust of that excrement, it's like, you shy away from it. You you don't you shrink away from it. And then the other side, where the rod is um, really really hot, when we think of grabbing a really hot rod, you know, the, the end of that rod that's really um, kind of glowing with heat, it brings about a fear that will hurt, uh, a dread that will hurt ourselves, um, and so. That's a kind of that's a kind of dread that we have. We don't want to go near it because of the karmic consequences of that, of getting burned, basically. So, out of respect um, for ourselves, out of respect for others, these are the two guardians of the world, and this is the basis of morality, the basis of sila. So this is the example of Hiri and Otapa, the two guardians of the world. And sometimes, you know, as we do our practice, there becomes times when we, we see that we really need to clean up our act. You know, there's some place where we see in ourselves or maybe we see acting out in others that uh, I don't want to do that. We can see out of compassion for others that they're doing things that really harm their own karmic stream, they're doing things that really harm their relationship with others in the world. This is not good. So I, I don't want to go in that direction. And then we, maybe we see, we see it in them because maybe there's a little part in ourselves that still does that. It's not like a really big mirror of ourselves, but we see maybe a small part of ourselves that still does that same thing. And so we shy away from that. And then get more vigilant around when that may happen. So it is really important important to ask ourselves, how can we clean up our acts a little more in our practice? What maybe what precept can we can we pay a little more attention to? Or what what part of this hiriotapa really speaks to us in a way that we can or we need to really clean up our act in that p- particular area. So I know this from hard-won understanding and, um, you know, really hard times to, to see uh, kilesas in myself that make me feel terrible. 
So today I remembered a, a beautiful teaching that comes from the ancient Hawaiian tradition, and uh, Amita Schmidt, the the one my one of our friends who wrote the book about Deepama called Knee Deep in Grace. I think it was retitled, but that was the name of it at first. And this teaching, this beautiful teaching, come is about the bowl of light. Um, this Hawaiian teaching which believes that we are all born with this bowl of light in our hearts. And this bowl of light represents the potentiality that all of us have as human beings to shine that light and to fulfill our highest aspirations, where all of these beautiful paramis will come to um, fullness or becoming into fullness. And so... The truth of it, though, is that through life's experiences, there are traumas and difficulties, and we begin putting stones into that bowl of light, and our heart becomes heavy. And so eventually, so many stones, so heavy our life is, our heart is, and we can't see the light, we can't see the potential in us anymore to really be free from all those stones. But one by one, uh, in the process of spiritual growth, just connecting with people that we love, doing the best we can in the areas of dana and sila, giving of ourselves, and giving of our goodness in sila as well, and receiving, recognizing the goodness of others. Uh, Things that, being with people, things that we love, having the faith to seek that out. Faith seeks out what is good. It doesn't cling to it, but it seeks out what is good. And each time we encounter something in us that um, makes us feel alive, like a moment of generosity that is extended to us, and then we you know, play that forward and extend to someone else, or a moment of the beauty of when we see someone really awake to uh, the distress of life and give some compassion and we do that too, just that's when we become alive. And that ability to take one of those stones and to put them out of the bowl. And one by one, that bowl of light begins to shine again. And one by one, our heart becomes lighter. And this is, this is through really understanding the extensiveness, the comprehensiveness of the Buddha's teaching that we can't just sit on our sitting cushions and think that we're just going to let go of everything. We have to do it in our lives as well. Pay attention to generosity. Pay attention to living in harmony with ourselves and others. So eventually that is a shining clear light of wisdom and compassion. And we cultivate all of these beautiful qualities so the Buddha said, These, the, this magnificent chariot of the Eightfold Noble Path has Hiri Otapa as its backrest. If you have this backrest, you will have something to rely on, something to depend upon, something on which you can sit comfortably as you travel toward your highest aspiration. If these qualities are weak, you will lose mindfulness and all the dangers that ensue. So, you know, really pay attention to these qualities. 
So the last thing I'd, I'd like to speak about is this quality of wisdom that we're developing here. So <clears throat> just I might go a little bit over time, so just don't hesitate to get comfortable and change your position whenever you need to. Or stand up if you're in the back especially. <clears throat> so the Buddha said that these are important, what I just talked about, but they're not the complete path. They're not the highest aspiration. They're really not the completeness of the Buddha's teaching. The ultimate aim of the teachings is to point the way to the present possibility of the unshakable deliverance of the mind and the heart, the complete deliverance from greed, hatred, and delusion. And so if we didn't say this, we would be kind of depriving you of the full teachings of the Buddha. So even though maybe our aim isn't like that, at least we need to know it. We need to really understand what the Buddha's teachings were completely all about. So the ultimate reality of the unconditioned uh, is what the teaching, the highest aim of the teachings of the Buddha. Um, the complete relinquishing of craving and hatred and ignorance, the extinction of all suffering, complete suffering. So having a generous heart, living in harmony, that, that can be the foundation. Without that, I mean, that is like the iceberg underneath, you know, almost like what's on the tip. You have to develop all of that before this can really be realized to its fullest. And when that's realized, then more of what's the foundation is kind of refined, actually. So these practices are, you know, of, of um, dana and sila are important, but they really form the basis for uh, deepening practice to come along. So this is the long-range view. It makes us possible to see beyond whatever goals you've made for yourself and see further than that. So bhavana, I'd like to talk about that part. It comes in two parts. Comes in the first part is samatha, which I'm not going to go over, and that's a pure concentration kind of practice. So I'm not um, reviewing that part tonight. <coughs> Just want to talk tonight on the second area of bhavana, and that's about the development of wisdom, bringing forth this liberating wisdom through the practice of what we're doing here during most of our day, which is satipatthana vipassana practice, which is liberating insight, transformative understanding, bringing about right view that leads to nibbana, that leads to the <coughs> unconditional peace. So vipassana means seeing things as they really are, seeing in an extraordinary way, not just being like mindful of each present step, but it's this extraordinary mindfulness that sees kind of below or beyond what the conceptual understanding is. It's not something that's a heady understanding or a theoretical understanding or a psychological understanding. It's a dharma, dharmic understanding. So satipatthana means extraordinary mindfulness. And it's mindfulness of um, what one of us talked about or mentioned, maybe a few of us, 
the four foundations of mindfulness that we're able to see every single one of them through the eyes of impermanence, through the experience of impermanence, through the experience of the impersonal nature of it, and through the experience of the unsatisfactory nature of it. So how does this happen? Concentration is hugely supportive, but it's not this concentration on a limited or a one object. In Vipassana, it's concentration on changing objects. It's not just staying with the breath, it's staying with anything else that arises. So breath is a good supportive place to be, but if we're just there all the time um, and, and not opening to the four foundations, we may not open to the fullness of, of liberation that way. So it's important to open to whatever is arising in the field of awareness, not just to the breath. So that's what we've been directing you to. Um, the experience of vipassana, as you all can attest to, is not one of great calm or delight. Uh, if that's your if that's your goal, you will be continually unsatisfied. <laughs> it happens, and it's really important because it gives a rest to the mind. It gives an oomph to the ability to continue that moment to moment experience. But when it's not there. Um, it's, it can feel disruptive, uncomfortable, and painful. And the subjective experience is that you're, you're a failure. I'm a failure, or it's not going right. But actually, it's good not to um, judge oneself because this may be, uh, as you go along in your practice, this may be actually progress in your practice because you're really beginning to open to this dukkha nature of how it is, and learning how to uh, navigate that terrain because it, we can't go around it, we can't go over it, it has to be gone through. That's, that's just the way it is in this practice. And so if we go over it, it's like a spiritual bypassing, you know. You just kind of agree with somebody who has done it and, you know, kind of vicariously think, okay, I'm, I'm enlightened too. Um, so we do have to learn how to go through these places. So the subjective experience of being uncomfortable, painful, that's really what's happening. We have to learn how to be with it and come to a place that can stay with it without getting lost in it. So it's important not to judge our practice and we learn a lot through going through it. So in this one of the last um, retreats that I did with uh, one of my teachers, Utejaniya from Burma, he teaches more specifically mindfulness of mind. It was really interesting. There were some quite a few new yogis in, in the room, in the practice. There were about 60 of us there. And um, it was mo- there were mostly a lot of Vietnamese people there because it it was organized by Vietnamese Vihara or monastery. So I got to go to that. And one one of the people was new, one of the yogis was fairly new and was sitting on his chair with his, you know, legs folded on on the chair. And he was he was kind of in front of me, so I saw him quite a bit and he was really doing what he was told. I mean, 
he was following instructions. Duh, you know. <laughs> so he was just doing it. And then in the, came the question and answer period. And he said to Seydal Utejinia, Seydal, I think I'm going crazy. And he said, I can't, the mind can't settle on anything. It's really painful. And I think I'm doing something wrong. And, um, and everything is just kind of arising and passing away. And nothing is staying still. And there's no satisfaction anywhere. And I'm just, I'm just what, whatever I thought was me is gone. And so I'm just, I think I'm crazy. And Utejaniya said, you were crazy before. He said, now you're really full of wisdom. And I thought, wow, that was a good way to say it. And everybody, you know, started to laugh, of course. But he was really in it. He was really doing it and into his practice. And uh, somebody just had to tell him, like Utejaniya said, there, there is, you know, your mind is really experiencing impermanence on an experiential level, moment to moment. It's seeing the ephemeral nature of the body and the mind, you know, no sense of solid self here. And are you, can you hold on to any pleasantness? You know, will it last forever? No. So he really just begun to see, just like that. And it was really interesting, like he just followed the instructions. Of course, he probably had a lot of incredible paramis, you know, who um, came into it. So when awareness is really strong, it's not identified or making a solid sense of self anywhere. And so we don't believe the stories in the mind because they're, you know, just coming and going. We don't, um, you know, hang on to a sense of self around them. And when there's this continuity, it starts piercing through the solidity of what's happening. It doesn't see things as solid anymore. And it's it's okay. It begins to be more and more okay. At first it's scary, and then you think you, you know, you're doing something wrong, but it turns out to be um, more and more equanimity towards it. So we also begin to experience like, oh, there is this experience arising, and there's a knowing of it, and those pass away. And there's experience of the arising and the knowing of it, and they both pass away. And that happens over and over and over again. So the, the mind begins to see its kind of very first important moment of an insight, knowledge. It becomes really distinct that there are two distinctly things happening, the experience or the object and the knowing of it over and over and over again. And you're not going into some psychological review of, you know, um, what happened in the past. It's just, just seeing that over and over again. And then also begin to experience that um, what, uh, everything arises due to conditions. You know, certain things happen, and then because of that, then other things happen. And one starts to begin to understand the conditionality of all of life. So things become so conditional that there is this questioning where is this me or mine in, in all these conditions? Things are coming and going. There's no solidity. It's almost like there's spaces between. There's just these conditions which in and of themselves don't have any solidity. So in the, the deepening understanding of 
where the question of where is me here, you know, and then getting used to it, it starts to happen, this understanding of anatta, this understanding of the not-self characteristic. So I love this um, saying by a little um, bit of understanding of this by Trungpa Rinpoche. The experience of oneself relating to other things is actually a momentary discrimination, a fleeting thought. If we generate these fleeting thoughts fast enough, we create the illusion of continuity and solidity and a sense of self. Like watching a movie, the individual film frames are played so quickly they generate the illusion of continued movement. So we build up an idea a preconception that self and other are solid and continuous. And once we have this idea, we manipulate our thoughts to confirm it, and we are afraid of contrary evidence. It is through fear of exposing this or the denial of impermanence that imprisons us. It's only by acknowledging impermanence that there is a possibility of appreciating life as a creative process. So this continuity uh, of seeing this momentum of mindfulness, moment-to-moment, moment-to-moment, builds that moment-to-moment concentration. It penetrates and pierces through the veils of illusion, of solidity, and the compactness of it. And we begin to see through what's happening in the body and in the mind, in all places of experience. And so we really begin to see not just impermanence, but that everything's so ephemeral, even this sense of self. It's like, I'm quoting Joseph, empty phenomena rolling on. And it becomes the truth of how it is, rather than kind of believing in what, from time immemorial, we have kind of put over something, um, an idea of self, There is a sense of self, that's true, in this relative relational world that we have to respect. But when we begin to see through that, we also see the ultimate or absolute view of things and see that also there exists this understanding that there is no core there anywhere. It's just all these things coming and going. So everything seen is being is fading away, and there's this insight into dukkha that you can't hold on to anything, anything at all, even what's pleasant. It just is going like water through one's hands. And so this deep insight into the unsatisfactoriness comes about. And these are kind of like the watermark moments of the of the practice you begin to experience little bits of it in your practice and then get used to it. And then in time, the mind develops this great equanimity towards everything. It's um, this place called the doorway to Nibbana, this great equanimity. And so one becomes at ease with how things are, this great coming and going, this ability to understand deeply this impermanence, this not-self or coreless understanding of, of life. And, um, but it's okay. You know, it's, it's, it's not 
like it becomes not scary. It becomes such a relief in life. You understand that, you know, this great big space of life, but you, you also begin to understand that it's really important on this relative level to pay attention to karma, to the laws of cause and effect. So that's the result of this understanding, that to understand deeply this impermanence, this not-selfness, this unsatisfactory nature, really brings you to the point of really have to pay attention. You really become more wise and more compassionate to pay attention to how are we living in this world. So I love this um, saying by Padmasambhava, uh, though my view is as vast and empty as the sky, my attention to the laws of cause and effect are as fine as barley flour. So you really, really pay attention to how we're living in life, and we begin to hold both of them with equal respect. So one doesn't negate another. One actually understands the other with with a deepening view of life. So this is how it is um, in in our practice and, and what we're going towards. One it's said that because of this deepening understanding and the purity of the mind, the, the trajectory can go nowhere but leap into the unconditioned. There's nowhere else for it to go. So I want to use the Buddha's words here to describe the indescribable because um, they say you really can't, of course, describe it because it's beyond words and beyond conditions. Like the Buddha said, it cannot be described in color, shape, size, dimension, likeness, remote cause, immediate cause, or in any other logical way of thinking. He says there is a sphere where there is no earth, no water, no fire or wind, no sphere of infinity of space or infinity of consciousness of nothingness, or even of neither perception nor non-perception. There is neither this world nor the other world, neither moon nor sun. This fear I called neither a coming nor a going, nor a staying still, neither dying nor a reappearance. It has no basis, no foundation, no support. This, just this, is the end of dukkha, the end of suffering. There is, monks, an unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded. If there were not this unborn, unmade, uncompounded, then there would be no deliverance here visible from that which is born, made, compounded. But since there is this unborn, unbecome, unmade, uncompounded, a deliverance is possible from that which is born, become, made, and compounded. I will teach you the far shore, the subtle, the difficult to see, the undisintegrating, the unmanifest, the unproliferated, the peaceful, the deathless, the sublime, the secure, the destruction of craving, the amazing, the unailing Nibbana, the island, the shelter, the refuge, Nibbana. So that is the highest blessing, 
that the Buddhist teachings can give us. And it's important to know the complete, comprehensive teaching, what the Buddha really aimed for, for all of us as human beings. So don't fall short. So let's sit for just a few moments. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.